All right, Dr. Jeff Spencer. It's uh, I don't. I was going to say we talk all the time, so I <laughs> <laughs> business as usual. This is business as usual, but it's great to see you again. Um, sorry for uh, the the technical malfunction that we have. Got our wires crossed, but champions know how to roll with the punches, right? Well, that, well you know what? Actually, when things go haywire in the champion space, they actually look at it as a better option once to find its way into the conversation. So I, I fully uh, am confident that we'll have just a, an incredible conversation. Awesome. Well, um, I've gotten to know you through uh, Nick Peterson and through the Wolf Den and through um, you know this this high performance space. But I I wanted to give you a chance to sort of explain a little bit about your background and tell us like how you got into this world of high performance, high performance coaching. How did you find your way into that? Well, first off, I've always had um, a bent for understanding certain things and observing patterns. Like if I see this, then I know that this is coming. And if this is coming, then I know what to do to either avoid the preventable problem or seize the best opportunity. And I've always had that gift. Don't ask me why, but I've always had that. And so the genesis to get from that to where I had my, actually my first coaching client was uh, a trip like through the Olympics. Um, when I was seven, I thought it'd be cool to be an Olympian. I had really great coaching from one of my angels that allowed me to develop the mental and the physical ability to become an Olympian in 1972. I was a sprint cyclist and I also rode the, uh, the tandem and the Munich Olympics. And that taught me uh, what the experience being at the top of a discipline really was. I had an intimate experience with that. If you have not been there, you can't read books about it. You can't talk to people that have done it. You have to be there to experience it. And if your DNA is there to uh, accept the responsibility of what it takes to do it, then, then you can get there, but you can also pass it on. And uh, then from there, I was uh, uh, between my sophomore and junior year at the University of Southern California, where I was a sports medicine uh, scientist student. Uh, I did go on to get my bachelor's, then on to get my master's degree in sports science, which was uh, another important clue because one of the things that we all kind of have to agree on that if you're going to have a successful life, that's always action driven because action is what creates the organization to be able to manifest the potential. And you have to be able to push. You got to have a body that can push when it has to push. And we also need the ability to physically stay in the game long enough to create the maximum number of significant uh, achievements that we can make that constitute our legacy. So there is a high burst longevity side to this. And when I began working with athletes and helping them win gold medals, I've helped athletes win over 40 gold medals in the Olympics, uh, world championships, national championships, and the Tour de France. Um, I also had them business people coming to me and say, well, you must know something about what it takes to become a champion. And I need to become a champion in business, which of course is a physical thing. If you cannot do the physical tasks of business or you don't have the mental presence to make the right decisions, well, then you're not gonna be able to create for yourself a life that could possibly and potentially be. And uh, with those, Two populations, I was able to help uh, recording artists uh, 
do platinum albums. I was able to help athletes win gold medals. I was able to help business people create iconic businesses. So it wasn't so much about the details of the specialty or the discipline. When I work with Tiger Woods, I mean, you know, Tiger has a putting coach. Don't ask me about putting. But when we want to talk about you, the athlete, you, the champion, and how you make champion decisions and how you show up and come from your championness, well, that is kind of where I come into that equation. And then so from there, the athletes uh, said, well, look, if I can extend my career, then I will make a ton of more money to be able to secure like my future. How do I not get injured? And then the business people said, well, look, I, I know that risk of business is that everybody blows themselves up prematurely, and then they have to take a year off to recover from that, or they may never recover. Some people actually die of a heart attack or a stroke in their early 40s or their late 30s. So that was another thing that was requested of me. So I went back to school and got uh, my licensure in uh, acute trauma with the chiropractic licensure. And I did the same thing in terms of wellness that I was able to bring to my clients. So I brought to them, number one, I know how to win. Winning is a learned skill. I can help you with that. I can show you how to avoid preventable problems and seize best opportunities. And I can also uh, help you evolve your career moving forward. And so the skill that I learned from that, those three things, it enabled me to, as a single individual, do the work of maybe 10. But I was able to take all of the things that had to go right and proportion them out that was specific to the individual or the group. And that was a tremendous advantage because that was uh, what allowed my clients to get to where they want to get to faster, more significantly with less resource burn. Because I do know that for those people that work with me, the, the benefits are number one, you know exactly who you are without any ambiguity, crystal clear. And you also know where you are in process. So there's, again, no guessing about where I am. And because we know what to do, then we know how to expend our energy uh, responsibly to be able to carry maximum momentum forward to achieve as many possible successes as we can. And also we're able to peek around the corner and know what's coming so that we're always prepared for next. And that's how I got to the place where I was. And my first client was in 1979. So that was like, what, 40, almost 50 years ago. And it's been evolving ever since. And I've enjoyed just an amazing career playing in the rarefied air with some of the most uh, prolific achievers of our era. But by far, the most important thing is that I'm not really a coach and I'm not really a mentor. You know, a coach is good in one area. A mentor is good in maybe half of a person's life. But you know, people are referred to me as the corner man, meaning that I can look at their life taken as a totality between their personal and their private life makes a, a singular them. And I can look at that and I know exactly what to do to be able to maximize most efficiently their ability to live a life of value and contribution. That's basically what I do. And that's how I got here. Yeah. And it's incredible. Some of the people that you've worked with, um, you know, Tiger being one of them, Lance being another, uh, some of the folks that I, you know, we run in real estate circles. And so a lot of people are familiar with Chris Voss and Jim yeah. Quinn, all people you've worked with. So yeah. it's just such an impressive, impressive resume. These are the, you know, you're the guy, the corner man that these people seek out. I mean, you're, right. you're the 
and that I, I sought out as, you know, we're endeavoring to do something, you know, incredible in this blockchain real estate space. Um, and by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this to you yet. I was going to show you here today, but I got you this uh, camera. It's from 1984 from the Olympics. Oh my now, God, look at that thing there. Look so at I that. don't know if you can see it that well. but I can uh, see that. That's one of those little uh, snap ones that used to have the uh, cartridges that you put in the back. That's right. So at a pawn shop or where we were looking around, I was looking for stuff for my board back here. I was like, oh, I got to get that for Dr. Oh, Jim. man. Well, listen, um, I cannot thank you enough for that. That will occupy a premier space in my trophy room for sure. Fantastic. Yeah, man. Well, so I want to ask you a little bit about um, the life lens progression. I was sharing that with some some different people. I got a lot of questions. A lot of people were really interested in that. And, you know, you've alluded to, you know, your ability because you've uh, you've you've worked with so many high performance people that you've seen it over and over and over again. And the life lens um, is sort of your way to take that thumbtack. Right. It's like we got to identify where you are in space first. And then you have developed this sort of uh, way of identifying what most high performers are, are, are going through at that point in time. But before I do that, I, I want to ask you, because you have worked with all these different people, what what might be some commonalities or some traits of, of the high performance person? Right. What's what's the type of you know similar vein you see through through these people? Well, first off, um, they live in a world called reality where they don't try to bend reality to tell them a story that they want to hear. They really want to know what the facts are about where they are and what that means in terms of decision-making to make responsible choices on where they put their time and their effort and their resources. And they're not reckless either. And they show incredible restraint in terms of not trying to jump too quick or go too fast to get from where they are to the finishing line. Because if you trip and fall and you don't finish, you don't win. Mm -hmm. And it's like they know that. And they also occupy a very special place in relationship to opportunity and decision making, which I call receivership. They can hold a place where they are actually quiet. They're not moving. They're not frenetically in uh, a breakneck pace trying to get somewhere. But they have the ability to pause and pull back and uh, contemplate the future and also petition or ask for wisdom and insight to be revealed to them rather than trying to rush and cram more things into a day, which increases the likelihood of an unnecessary, unnecessary stall or derailment when they're not sure or they're at an impasse. Again, they practice uh, this idea of receivership where you're literally petitioning to the ethers to have revealed to your consciousness options to be considered about how to proceed forward with the least amount of risk and the highest possibility of leverage towards the bigger future. They always thank their teammates. They put their teammates first. They always reward their teammates. They're good listeners. They uh, are not looking for a shortcut. They're looking for a right cut, meaning they want the right path forward. 
but they also know that plans and goals are best estimates about the future. They're not really reality. It's a presumed reality that would might be possible later, but it's not reality now. Therefore, as they are in the process of executing the steps to achieve something, their radars are up for the reality of choices at the time that they are executing a particular part of the plan itself. And if it requires adapting to make a change to better suit the circumstances of the present, then they always do that. They never stick rigidly to something that's uh, become like obsolete. You know, some people think, well, if I said it, then I'm going to do it. Well, not a good idea to continue to do it if it's become obsolete. So they always give themselves the flexibility to adjust to reality. And I would say also another side to this is that they never try to be perfect. I mean, it kind of makes sense in a human mindset sense that perfection will deliver on highest return, but actually people that are trying to be too perfect all the time are generally indecisive. Their timing's off. They try to push too hard when a window's open. It usually doesn't go well. And the truth is, is that when we practice restraint or we practice receivership and we actually pull back a little bit and we do, do we detune away from trying to be perfect, we actually pick up acceleration because perfection puts an inherent resistance in the system. And so, uh, again, they prize the fact that, you know, 90% is probably good enough. The extra 10% is a fiddle factor for allowances for uninterrupted and yet unanticipated uh, circumstances that show up. And those are some of the most important characteristics that represent the prolific achievers. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that from you. And of, of course, I'm uh, thinking of the chameleon that you've taught me oh, about. Chameleon, yeah, for sure. One eye this way, one eye that way. That's, yeah. You have to be able to do that as a champion. And in fact, I'm sitting here holding all of your, your models. And so, you know, here's your Gokus Focus pendulum. And so you got receivership on this side and, you know, application on the other. And, and, you know, it's just incredible. I've got an entire binder of models and life lens and legions capital and the champions ladder and all these things. It's like, how incredible it is to see all this stuff in such a usable workable model in these in these different tools like this i mean i can tell this is the result of 50 years worth of work in the in the high performance yeah. space yeah well thanks i mean you know i'm 71 now i don't know what that's supposed to look or feel like but you know over time you start to gain um an insight into pattern recognition and you start to see that there are combinations of things that can be codified that if we understand them we can take control of our life in a way that we develop an immunity against the stumbling block blocks that most people trip over and that's you know one of the advantages of staying in the game uh, uh, as long as i have well so like i said we got a lot of uh i got a lot of people asking me about the life lens progression i had sort of thrown up a post like, hey, I learned this from Dr. Jeff, how incredible it, it, it is that he's describing exactly where I am. And, and I feel all these things. Um, I had folks that were, you know, as you know, I'm 32. I had folks that were in their 40s, folks that are in their 50s that reached out and they're like, this is so accurate. How <laughs> does he know this about me? Talk to me about the life lens progression. How did you come up with this? Talk to me about uh how you apply this to, to help your, 
clients, you know, understand where they are in space and time? Well, again, I, I'm an observer of the human condition. And yeah, I don't read that much because I find that reading gets in the way of my observation. If I sit there and I contemplate and I look for connections between things like, oh, I saw this and this created that. And because it created that, this is what we do to capitalize on it. And this is what we do to avoid the problem. And so I've, first off, you know, my uh, ability to observe and make connections is my strongest asset. So as I see patterns emerge that are very consistent, then I'll create a model out of it that could then be used as a reference tool to help guide us forward to be able to make the best decisions continuously over time. So I observe that every decade, like you've got decade one from zero to 10 years, decade two, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40, 50, 50, 60, 50, 70. And what I recognize there, yeah, there you go. Yeah, is not everybody these, wanted to know what we're talking about. Yeah, this there we go. Fun. So that's, uh, that's actually a portion of it. It's not the entire part. That's really uh, was dedicated to, to the career years, the highest career years. But what the observation was is that in each decade, there was a way of thinking or a lens that we looked at life through. Therefore, life lens progression. It was every decade, there's a lens of thinking that we apply to our experience as we're living it that influences the decisions that we make. And it changes every decade. It's almost like it's a time release vitamin where you take it, you have this experience. So for example, in the 20s, it's usually altruism. You know, you're gonna do anything to create the utopia that hasn't happened yet. And all the time and effort is kind of devoted to that. We're very altruistic, but then we realize, well, that didn't work out so well. And then in the 30s, it's the decade of conquest. You know, I just want to get all this stuff and I want to demonstrate a personal value to humanity. I'm a self manifester uh, and I have a body of evidence to show that I got the house, I got the car, I got all the stuff. And um, in the 40s, because we generally collect too much stuff in our enthusiasm in the 30s where we got all the stuff, but now we got to manage it and management takes time and energy and resources and finances to do that. And those are things that aren't contributing to our bigger future. They're just holding ground in the here and now. You know, there's no kind of forward payoff for that. And people at a certain point, now they're you know, 20 or maybe 20 years into their profession, they're kind of tired. And when they get tired, maybe they have a couple of kids, a couple of kids, and then they may not think they're making the progress that they should and everybody else's life looks great. They're not feeling so good about themselves. They know that they're going to blow themselves up because they can't keep this pace up. And it changes things a lot in the late 30s, where sometimes to such an extent that a person thinks about, well, maybe I'm going to quit here because I can't sustain this effort. And that's where divorce happens. Uh, it gets kind of really messy there. Um, so again, that's zone of doom. Zone of doom. Yeah. And to me, that's anticipated. I was just talking with a group last night about that. And they were kind of amazed that I could call that out because many of them had had that experience. And I said, well, if we know that it's coming, then we know what to expect as being usual and customary. And it doesn't mean that we're a freak. A lot of the things that we experience in life, we feel, well, it shouldn't have happened because had I known this or had I known that, it wouldn't be like this. But what I found is, is that the human way of looking at things the way that most people do 
it's very predictable that in the 30s, you're going to over leverage yourself. And then you're going to put yourself and back yourself into a corner that now you get to get out of. And so then the decade of 40s is really about I got to restore order in my life because my life is so upside down now I, I cannot continue to create or certainly not prosper living with the clutter that my life has become because I thought that what I would acquire for myself would be freedom. But it's actually now kind of put me in a jail where I, I don't have a lot of room to move. And I don't think that I like that. And then in the 50s, it's more about contribution where we're not done working yet, but we want to contribute back to humanity. Then the 60s is about uh, contribution where mentorship becomes a really big deal where you want to actively involve yourselves in the lives of others to help promote them to shortcut their learning to be able to live a life of passion, purpose, and productivity and, and prosperity, I might add. And when you get to the 70s, like myself, you, you kind of, you know, that you've made it through life this far. You kind of don't care what anybody thinks. You're going to tell them for the first time in your life what you really think about them. You can kind of be a little bit obnoxious, kind of be the grumpy old man, um, because you don't have to be the perfect person, you know, so again, that's kind of what this looks like. But the, but the real value of this, Paul, is that one of the biggest risks that every one of us faces is that we don't have enough life experiencing experience, and we're guessing about what we believe to be true, and we're applying what we think needs to go right based upon what we think is true. And if it's not true, it's still not true. And we may find ourselves in a situation that could have been completely avoidable, but now we're completely blocked in life. And it may take a lot of lot, time, effort, resources and credibility to get ourselves out of it and a lot of this doesn't have to happen so kind of what the value of the life lens progression is is that it gives us a preview of what life will be that puts us a choice as to what we want to risk becoming later if we follow our uh, natural inclinations without kind of looking at what history tells us that we should be at least considering and if it appears to be right as we're inching our way there, perhaps we should back off and, and avoid the problem that we don't have to have. And most people don't do that. Most people are just incredibly reckless. They just think because they think it that it's real. Therefore, I'll just do what I think and we'll see what happens. It, it, it rarely turns out well. You know, you're talking about restraint and you've said this to me time and time and time again, that the number one word in the champion's vocabulary is restraint and, and what you're describing as um, being able to have someone like yourself identify the things that are coming. And, and it's like, you know, we talk about the zone of doom and, you know, we talk about like, well, it's, gonna, it's going to come Paul, like right, this is right. very, you know, normal part of, uh, you know, how this all works. And so um you know, restraint has to be a part of the champion's vocabulary. I want to hear more about this idea of allegiance capital as well, because what you're referring to is, is being able to help me see around the corner to see what's coming. That's a version of allegiance capital. Do you mind, because you are kind of the, the creator of this term, this is your, your concept. I mean, it's funny because my team is probably going to be like, oh, really? You got... Dr. Jeff's been using this because like I've been using this ever since I met you yeah. and communicating that with my team, how to use that. And tell us a little bit about Allegiance Capital. What is it and, and how does it apply here? Allegiance Capital, two words, allegiance. Allegiance is where a person will give a certain percentage of themselves unconditionally 
to support another or a group. Capital is like a currency that can be used to promote uh, some advancement or progress in an initiative. When we talk about allegiance capital in this context, leadership specifically, that one of the primary objectives of a leader is to develop their allegiance capital, meaning that I need to gain the trust of my team to trust me that I'm gonna take them to their promised land, a place that they can't take themselves to, but I can. And if they believe that I'm a credible source of this, then they will support me by showing up 100% of the time with 100% willingness to do whatever it is that I ask of them to take us to the objective that I've created. And the amount of allegiance that they give to me is based upon their trust in me to be able to do that. The more trust I have, the more capital I have to apply towards the actions that need to go right to get us to the finish line where we all jointly benefit from that particular victory. And so there are certain things that a leader needs to do to be able to get that allegiance from their team. Number one, uh, the team needs to feel like we acknowledge them as humans. For example, if me as a leader went and I were asking for advice from one of the teammates or one of the employees that I have, and I was seeking their wisdom and their counsel and really listening, and they provided that, they would say, well, that's pretty amazing because the leader or the boss came to me asking me about what I thought, and I told him, and he said, well, that was a good idea. Now, all of a sudden, the uh, employee trusts me because the presumption I didn't make was I knew everything even better than the employees that were hired to do that very thing. And so my credibility like goes way up. And another example of this would be to acknowledge a teammate either you know, publicly or to them uh, privately. So for example, let's say that somebody demonstrates uh, one of the core values of the business and at a team meeting that's referenced. Like a perfect example of what I just said, everybody, is that we had mixed directs do this and the outcome from that was X. And so I was able to acknowledge them in a, a personal way that again, uh, told them that I was listening and that I was actually there and I do know who they are and I do know what they do and I respect them. And another part of that, so they give more of themselves to me because they trust me. Another way would be not micromanaging. Like you guys are here hired to do a job. It's not my job to do your job for you. And sometimes founders and CEOs do that. They kind of usurp the person's power and the reason why they're there. But if the leader gets themselves out of the way and lets them do their job correctly and make sure that they have everything that they need to do that, then what that tells the teammate uh, or the employee, well, hey, the boss was actually listening. He did have a sensitivity to what my needs are and he made sure that I had everything that I needed to produce you know, my product or my part of what had to go right for, for the business goal. And so you kind of see how that works. And then another side uh, to this um, as well is that the leader needs to be similar to those underneath him, but not the same. And what I mean by that is, is that the dress can't be like a thousand times different than what most people wear. It has to be similar enough 
where the teammates, the employees say, well, you know what? Jeff is kind of like us because he dresses like us. He uses a vocabulary that works for us. He doesn't use all these big fancy words. He comes and hangs out with us a little bit. We know he's not him. We know he's the boss, but you know, he's kind of like us because he understands what we're doing by what he says and how he shows up. And because he acknowledges us, we have to trust him that he knows what we're doing. And when you look at those things that I just said there, what the sum total of this is, is that the people will say, you know what, this person understands me and people want to be understood. And when they're understood and they feel like they're heard and they're being valued, then they give that proportion of themselves that could be used to do the processes to move the business as a whole towards the uh, finish line. So um, one of the things, it, another thing I'll say about Allegiance Capital is that it it doesn't self-perpetuate. It always needs to be demonstrated so it's maintained. You know, therefore, we need to come from that space um, intermittently, uh, at least enough to demonstrate for people that we maintain that level of connection with them that they originally saw. And to me, it's one of the most important tools ever. I can't hear you, maybe it's my end. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Man, I'm telling you, my uh, my microphone's like off and I'm just I'm just having malfunctions today. So I don't know what's going on, but well, we're, gonna well, we're having a great conversation. So that's all that matters, we're good. So I'm looking at this Allegiance Capital, I, don't know, I would call it like a, a framework, I guess. And what you're you're describing is this, you know, scenario where you've got high trust in leadership, yes, and high mission belief. That is what we what we aspire to get as as leaders, right? We want to have the trust of everyone on the team that we're making the right decisions, that we're making decisions that are going to benefit them, and we want them to have a high belief in mission. And one of the first things that we went through when I was at your champions experience uh, a few months back in, in San Diego, amazing event. Um, we went through the right goal challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's relevant in the, in the current moment with the way the market is affecting, especially a lot of real estate investors, newer real estate investors. Um, and you know, as leaders, it's our responsibility to make sure we're picking the right goal at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a version of Allegiance Capital. We can't build trust from the team, trust in leadership if we don't have the right goal, you know, if we're not heading in the right direction. Um, so I learned from you that the right goal is receivership plus application, right? And it essentially means we have to be able to see the bigger picture, like you say, like, you know, take it all in. Right. And then constantly be iterating back and forth. Um, and I'm sort of weaving a lot of these principles around because I study them so much and I'm sort of uh, uh, I just love them. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to now reference the the Gokus Focus Pendulum. And I think uh, this is relevant for a lot of business owners who call themselves visionaries. Mm -hmm. Right. And and this swinging back and forth that has to take place from, you know, what you call receivership, 
-hmm. which is as a visionary, we need to spend a lot of our time in receiverships, looking mm -hmm. down, the road, collecting our skills, you know, you call it peripheral awareness, um, allowing space to see these things. And, but we also have to recognize that there's a time to swing back into the other side, which is what you call uh, application phase or intentional iteration. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Well, the observation is this, is that um, to be successful at achievement, there's two things that have to happen. There has to be the vision, the castle on the hill, and then there needs to be the execution of the processes that lead to the completion of the castle. There, there are two different things. You know, one is, again, an application of all the technical things that have to go right to manifest the vision of the castle on the blueprint on the hill. And when we look at the, the vision of contribution there, the vision of the castle on the hill is really an executive function of founder the CEO, where they're, they're the visionary. They're the one that spends time contemplating future and where the business is headed and what it's going to look like in the future. Uh, that has to happen simultaneously with the time and effort that's been being applied currently uh, towards producing the product uh, and the purpose of the business like itself currently. And that's an executive function. And time has to be allocated for a person to just remain in contemplation. And sometimes you can get that uh, in a canoe, you can get that in the shower, but you can't get it when you're buried in the details of daily operations because there's not enough space and it's not tranquil enough for good ideas and big ideas to show up in the consciousness of the uh, executive leader that should be doing that. Um, again, executive leadership is not grabbing the hammer and the nails and building the structure. It's about, again, creating what the structure will look like and amassing the team and the financing like to make it happen. So that would be one part of the pendulum. Then it, once all that's worked out, then the pendulum kind of needs to swing back into the uh, other half of it which uh, we discuss is the application. This is where the action steps are actually done, where the structure of the building is put up, where the sidewalls are put into it, where the, uh, the cement is poured, where the paint is applied to make sure whatever the product is rolls off the production line. So both of those have to be working together and it can move a bit into one more than the other, depending upon what the context uh, and the progress is being made and the goal is. But the key thing here is, is that um, sometimes visionaries do not make good executors. And sometimes good executors don't make good visionaries. That both of those posts need to be manned at a very high level to make sure that the correct vision that sees what the target is, is identified in the path they're created but the execution of the path and the adaptation of it takes place from the application side. That maybe, for example, like the COO, the chief operating officer that's involved with all the operational tasks that are required to do that, that's where he lives. And so that's uh, what has to happen 
to be able to maintain the balance in the GOCUS focus pendulum. GOCUS means it's a very special type of goal focus where you're looking very directly at what has to go right with one eye and then the other eye, like a chameleon, that other eye is looking at the future and what we need to build to be able to make sure that we know what our next target is and we plan out how to go from where we are to where we want to get to. I, I hope that that uh, you know, clearly um, identifies and, and describes the GOCUS focus pendulum. I, you know, I understand it to be exactly as you said it, you're going to, you're going to lean more towards one way or the other. As, as a human, you're going to have a natural proclivity. Yep. That's true. But then in the creation or in the process of creating the goal itself, there will be times where you know exactly what you need to do. And it's all hands on deck on the application side. This is where things are being built at you know, high speed. This is where the planning is being executed. And then there will be pauses where you move back into the um, other side of the equation receivership where you need to be now thinking about what the next steps are. So the pendulum will kind of naturally swing into one or the other halves, depending upon what the need of the goal is at a specific, a specific point in time. Mm -hmm. You know, and it feels like with the way that you know, in real estate for the last, I mean, honestly, 10, 12, 10 years, it was just like this up and to the right. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, you couldn't really, I mean, you, anybody could get into real estate and do well. Right. And, and now we're seeing that the market's shifting. We're seeing people um, <clears throat> that, that used to stand in receivership that are going to have to roll their sleeves up, put their gloves on, get back into the application side of it because that's the natural rhythm of the business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't need someone manning the post of receivership. And, and I want to be, you know, be clear about that. Like you said, we, we sort of lean more towards one or the other. Um, but there's times when you have to swing from one side to the other because the business requires it. Yeah, what, there's a natural inclination that we all have. Like leaders tend to be the visionaries, so they spend most of their time in receivership, where people that are natural builders, they're more suited to be in the application side where the hammer and nails are actually been, you know, actually assemble the, the physical uh, space of, of what the enterprise is. So there's a natural inclination that we have, but the point is, is that we all have a certain ratio of visionary plus um, executor. But we need to make sure in a business that we have the right staff posted at the right locations so that we can have the visionaries do what they do and we can have the operators and the um, executors do what they do because without the right amount of either of those, then the business ultimately stalls. So as long as the bases are covered on that, you should be in great shape. So what are some of the things then, if you are that CEO and you're in receivership, what are some of the actions that you should be taking on a, you know, a consistent basis? Well, that would, if you're uh, in the CEO position or the founder position, it means you're responsible for creating the path forward. You're responsible for assembling the team. Uh, you're uh, the face of the company that will present itself to the public 
you will be the one kind of making the, the deals that uh, are partnership driven or financially uh, related to, to the business itself. So there's two different things that we need to be very mindful about what our scope of responsibility is. And we have to make sure that we're appropriately informed of what's happening with the business at all times so that things remain transparent and observable to be able to take advantage of opportunities when they show up and also avoid unnecessary risks when they show up as well. That's the way that this needs to be looked at. And quite honestly, when the business is doing really well and humming right along, the CEO should not be meddling and trying to make things go faster when everything's almost too good. You know, when things are almost too good, you let the operations continue to foster and cultivate the production line to produce the product. And that's where the uh, business person, actually the executive uh, visionary should actually be doing a several things. Number one, they should be building the business skills for whatever's coming next, because the time to build the skills for next is when you got the time to build them. You can't build them once you're in next, it's, it's too late. They also uh, need to be um, restoring energy and inventory that was used up in the previous push. They need to make sure that they're restocking that um, as well. And they also need to be continuing to build the Allegiance Capital because when things are humming right along, the team needs to be acknowledged as being the driving force behind the success that the business is currently experiencing. So uh, that's what the CEO role is. It's a time not to meddle, but also simultaneously build for the future when the business is humming right along. Mm -hmm. And if the business is not humming right along, it's time to innovate. Right, it's time to come in and do what the CEO does, which is bring the innovation, the new ideas, the you know, um, guide the ship, so to speak. Um, which is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, a lot of folks have found themselves recently. Yeah, and, and that's sometimes a product of not anything that we did. It, it's a force of the market that was unanticipated, and that's just kind of how life is sometimes. So I think it's really critical that. There are going to be moments that everybody experiences where things do go south that could not have been predicted. It's just part of the reality of what life is. And obviously, uh, the thing to do when we find ourselves in a situation where we've lost a bit of advantage is to get back in the game prudently by uh, adjusting and taking on the skills required not only for now, but what we're going to be needing for next. And a lot of people kind of forget that. So that when things turn more favorable again, they're caught with their pants down because they weren't ready for it because they didn't prepare for it. The time to prepare for it is when you got the time to prepare for it, which is before it, it actually hits. So just a couple of other things I think they're really important to, to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. Well, so we've talked about the life lens progression. I, I'm sure a lot of people who are going to hear this have heard your human mindset champions mind talk. And, you know, that's that's one of your uh, most legendary models. But we've talked about the life lens. We've talked about allegiance capital. We talked about the gocus focus pendulum. Um, and like I said, I've got an entire binder here of 
of other models and things that you've used that I still haven't learned yet that I'm you know hoping to learn from you uh, through throughout the you know the coming years. And so my question would be, how do people learn more about this? How do people find out more about uh, some of the things that you're doing and maybe tell us a little bit about uh, some of the things that you're working on because I know you got some cool stuff. Sure. Yeah, well, thanks. You know, I've always got things in the hopper. Well, um, there's a couple of ways to to reach out to me. Uh, if you're interested in taking a look at what your current needs are uh, as a high performer, uh, you can always uh, get to me by going to my website, which is drjeffspencer.com. And uh, there's uh, an application that you can fill out that gets returned to me. And uh, I look at it, you know, if I feel like there's a reason for us to have a conversation then we set up a Zoom where we get a chance to know each other a little bit better. And I, the thing that I would want to say here is that, you know, even though I've worked with some household names uh, throughout my entire career, who I work with is not decided by their notoriety. It's decided about, it's decided on them and the merits of them as a human. And if they're, uh, interested, if I'm interested in what they're doing, what they're doing is bringing value to people, then I'm interested in who they are and how I might be able to support that. So let me say that up front. And you can just fill that out. It's online and submit it to me and uh, I'll get back to you. Um, the other thing is that I have some events coming up here. We've got the Table of Champions, which will be a group of 20 people only, then it closes. And this is where we go through in 2023 we go through all of the models where we get together in three, actually four uh, live events where we will be workshopping together by doing very specific exercises. And I will be personally uh, sharing what those models are that you've referred to and in explicit detail so that everybody understands exactly what they are, uh, how they can be a benefit and how do we apply the technology of these. If uh, you're interested in learning about that, you can certainly reach out to me. Just send me an email, jeff at drjeffspencer.com. Let me know. Uh, you will be considered. It will be a group of 20. Registration right now is up and underway. When we get to 20, then that's when registration closes. Um, that would be the easiest and most efficient way to, to get them, Paul. And then I'll also be doing some one-off events this coming year. If you're interested in those, also just write me a, an email, jeff at drjeffspencer.com. Let me know that you're interested in one of the uh, two-day events, and I'll get back to you and let you know. Best way to do it. Fantastic. Yeah, I've been in your space now for, for six months, and you're going to have a hard time getting rid of me, my friend. So I don't want to get rid of you, man, because you're, <laughs> you're an absolute gem. You're an absolute jewel, man. I got to tell you. We, we never have a bad conversation. That's because of how you show up, Paul. Great credit to you. Well, thank you. So if you guys, like, like I said, uh, go check him out, drjeffspencer.com. Um, and uh, anything else you want to add before we, before we take off? Yeah, you know, there's always room at the top for the best. And let, let's not decide that we're not one of the best because we all can be. And also that there's only one of us in all the creation. I think about that a lot. There's no other version of you and every one of us has got something of significance, something of significance to share. And when we develop uh, our best assets and our best skills and we create a life based on that, then we're making the best contribution that we can make to humanity. And when we've done that, then it's possible to live a life of tranquility of being 
meaning and also contribution to others. And that's the reason why I do my programs. That's the reason why I'm still in the game. I want to share with others what I know to shortcut their path to the winner's circle. Thanks again, Paul, for the amazing opportunity. Incredible. Well, thank you, Dr. Jeff. We'll, uh, I'll talk to you in a few days. Yeah, wait. We'll see you then. Be well. Right. Thanks, everybody.